Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a fellow podcaster, Gilles Toussaint. Now, Gilles is not only the host of the Mission First Entrepreneurs for Future podcast, but also the founder of GT Impact, a consultancy helping green tech entrepreneurs to increase their revenue with efficient growth marketing sprints and data-driven content marketing. You may have guessed it, in this week's episode, we will cover the ins and outs of marketing and growing a green tech company. We'll see that the receipts we discuss work equally well on larger groups, but to keep everything within a reasonable length, we'll focus on startups. Indeed, Gilles shares how you cannot have an impact if you don't make a lot of profit and how profit is a key performance indicator for the magnitude at which you solve your customer problems. He'll also tell us what to like and use within the growth marketing world while warning us from the murmured song that growth hacking can be. Throughout our conversation, Gilles covers when you shall start your marketing effort and where to begin, what framework to follow to feed your growth, and which specific stage will be your unexpected winning underdog. Gilles also discusses what usual mistakes most of the companies do around trade shows and what to do instead, but also how entrepreneurship timelines and tactics evolved, several examples of companies he worked with, finding the most valuable business case, applying the same universal principles to B2C and B2B, the perks of brand and personal branding, the four LinkedIn post type that will skyrocket your reach and so much more. Now, to apply the 95-5 rule Gilles shares in our discussion, I'll close this introduction with a very simple call to action. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends. Refer them to the podcast and win my eternal gratitude together with the feeling that you did them so much of a service. Come on, do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Bonjour, bonjour, Gilles. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Um... Actually, the reason why I'm using this bonjour, bonjour is that I noticed that we might have an influence in common, which is probably this kind of usual thing you see in podcasters, which are listening to French-speaking guys making a podcast in English. So I would guess that you have an influence from Louis Grenier. Exactly. Right? I, lo I love Louis Grenier. I love Louis Grenier. I, I mean, I stole, I also do that in my podcast too. And I thought, okay, I'm copying it a bit. But at the end of the day, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. I think it's because we are French speaking and it, it's fine. You know, I might have tried to be a bit creative. So I'm saying hello, bonjour and welcome. So I don't say bonjour, bonjour, but I get it. Let's start with our good old traditions. You are in Berlin right now. So you're French speaking, making a podcast in English, you're based in Berlin, and you're from Belgium originally, right? Yes. So what brought you to Berlin and what can you tell me about Berlin that I would still ignore? Hello, have you been to Berlin? Yeah, I had that chance, you know, in the world before when we were able to travel. There's usually Vassa Berlin, which is quite a, a huge fair for the water industry. Yeah, there is probably a fair for everything in Berlin. I guess it's a trendy city and uh, everybody wants to come. I moved here eight years ago and the reason was simple. I think, to be honest, at the time, I just needed some fresh air. I grew up in a small 
town, village. Then I studied in Liège, in Lüttich. And then I, I spent 10 years working in, in R&D uh, in, in the academy of the university and then for a, a big corporate company. And I just had all my friends getting married. Uh, I was going out of a breakup too. And everybody had children. Nobody was doing anything anymore. And I felt like I was a bit stuck. And I had a fantastic project in a, like when I worked for, for this corporate company developing lithium battery materials. It was a fantastic project where I had the chance to arrive there. It was very small, a product coming from the lab, and then I had to scale it up with a whole team and like uh, as a manager and, uh, and and participating with other managers so i learned a lot and i had a lot of responsibilities at the same time it was very exciting but then it was the end of that project we had scaled it up to you know a big industrial prototype and we had to go back to the lab and uh, i must say i was i'm always been i loved science and i i, I loved the part about developing a product and, and digging into the numbers and everything, but I, I always felt that's not where I was best. And I, I like more the part about innovation and starting something and also working on the strategy and business and marketing, even though at the time I didn't know it that much. And, you know, with these corporates, you know probably that, right, from your interviewees and from where you work. You know, when I asked to go into the innovation department, they told me, oh, you have to go five years. You have to, you know, like if you want to do that, you first have to become a plant manager and there go for be a plant manager for two, three years. And, and maybe you will switch to that one. And I was like, no way. I don't want to like go this path. Of... And going back in the lab, it was a company in the phosphate industry and we were working with lithium iron phosphates for batteries which was a great thing. Uh, like it was a very impactful product, you know, that we were like uh, potentially being going to, like, going to sell it to battery manufacturers to sell in electric cars. So very exciting project. But then the rest of the phosphates in R&D were for, you know, food industry and which is really something that I'm completely against a bit, this uh, like manufactured food. And so uh, I was like, okay, I need to change something. And at the time I went to, uh, to be honest, I went to a life coach and uh, she told me, I was feeling a bit, I wouldn't say depressed, but starting to see the, the slope of going, I'm not happy with what I'm doing. And she advised me to actually take some holidays. And I went for the first time in like three weeks in, in Indonesia alone. And there was well, the first time I was alone there and actually I loved it. And there I was, I, I took my decision. I was like, okay, I love to travel. I want to see more of the world. Let's take a break. And, uh, you know, everybody tells you this life coach as well, uh, which was, you know, an HR manager too, told me, no problem with your CV, you can stop one year. So instead of traveling for one year, I said, okay, I love startups. I would, I have some ideas. I love music. Let's go to Berlin. And this is how I decided to go for Berlin for one year. And it turned out to be eight years. <laughs> you a bit alluded to, to the first part of your, your career where you were really working on this uh, hardware chemistry side, hardcore more than hardware, by the way. And it's quite funny to see that you ended up in Berlin, which is going to be the epicenter of batteries in Europe for the next decade. We're with Tesla now, but you moved to Berlin for totally different reasons. So you expressed why you, you changed your path, but how is it to really go to those really different areas? Because without spoiling too much of your path, you are now in an, again, different field from the one which brought you to Berlin, if I get it right. Yes. I mean, this is a tough part, I'd say, to change. What I would recommend to everyone is if you have any feelings and you think you should change, you should just take your chance because I have zero regrets about making the change. It wasn't easy, especially like 
I think Germany, I think it's very different depending on where you are. Uh, you know, I talked to my cousin lives in London and I think in the Anglo-Saxon countries, they are not so much into verticals. They think that if you are a good manager in chemistry, if you can manage people in chemistry, you can manage people in finance and you can, you know, you can go into the finance in London and find a job, even if you have no experience with finance. In Germany, when I arrived first uh, and I started to look for jobs in startups or something, and I said, oh, I was a project manager in chemistry. I can be a project manager for software. And they were all like, yeah, but you have never done anything in software. And on the other end as well, in Germany, they value a lot of PhDs. So they were like, you are a doctor. Why do you want to switch to something else? You, you put it on your visit card, you know, uh, this diploma engineer or this uh, That's the only doctor. place where I put it. I've never used it anywhere in Belgium, but now in, in Germany, I use it. I sign it, uh, I sign it in, my, you know, in my signature or if I apply, if I apply uh, you know, what I used to. The funny part, when I worked at ResearchGate in sales, this was the first time when actually I saw such a huge difference in terms of results. When we're cold calling people, I realized because some of the colleagues were doing it, so I started to do it too. If you call a company in Germany and if you say, hey, my name is Gilles, I'm, I would like to talk to such person. First of all, in Germany, you wouldn't say to such person. You would say, I want to talk to Dr. Schmidt. And uh, the other th funny thing is that I realized that if you say very brief, here, Dr. Toussaint, uh, I want to talk with Dr. Suff, it makes a huge difference. And you go through the what we call the gatekeepers way easily. So this doctor degree just here in Germany is so much values. So I, I probably drifted a bit uh, like uh, sewing. Uh, yeah, so changing. Changing is not easy, but at the end of the day, Berlin is open to a lot of different things. And what I ended up doing is I ended up in the startup world. On one side, I mean, I drifted a bit. I still do a lot of music, but I also had the chance to focus on music for myself and, and, and work on, on, songs, on songwriting myself. And I started to, you know, go playing in the street with a street amp and having a, a, a small jobs, working in a Belgian bar, selling Belgian beers <laughs> here in Berlin. And I actually loved that part. And, uh, and at the same time, I went to the startup world where I created my own startup, co-founded it in the startup weekend, and it went tremendously well. And I ended up like selling my shares after a few months when we got funded properly And we had to go to, to China because at the same time I met the cellist of my band, Natasha. And I just was, for the first time, I was like, I have the chance to do music. I meet someone, I mean, another artist that I met so many like great artists, but I meet someone that I, I really have a connection to that believes in me, that showed me that actually I can be an artist too. And this is the, was the part where I said, okay, I sell my shares and I only do small jobs. And during one year and a half, I recorded my first album, And kept on doing music and, and just, you know, I, I worked as a rickshafar, as a, you know, bike taxi driver for a few months because it was allowing me to get good money and work whenever I wanted and do music the other time. At the same time, at some point, I started to have the opportunity to work part time for ResearchGate. And then the, like, let's say the, the exciting part came again because I was like, oh, this company is so exciting. The CEO was so inspiring. The impact of the company is huge. And I understand the pain that they are solving as a scientist myself. And they were going through this. The company has been there for eight, nine years. Uh, but they, it was the first time they, started, they were starting to monetize it. And that was my first opportunity to have a, uh, they asked me if I wanted to be in the sales team that they were starting to grow. And it was the first, I always say, I never have, I never want to be a salesperson. <laughs> 
But at the same time, I had read at the same time, you know, in the startup world that everybody should at least do a pure sales job for three months. So I was like, you know, let's take it. And actually it was a fantastic experience. And that led me to a different job after and uh, to being a CMO and then to have the job that I have now. It's interesting what you just said about the, the, the sales first, because I can tell you I was on that path at some point and I recognize what you just said, but also because, you know, you've mentioned research, uh, music, and those are just fields where usually if you come in and say, hey, I'm going to do some sales, people look at you like you just gave you, your soul to the devil. It's, it's like the worst thing that could happen. And maybe not the worst, because there's even worse than sales. There's marketing. <laughs> and, and you thought that you, you, you hadn't still touched the bottom with sales, so you went to marketing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I personally had a worse feeling for sales than marketing because sales, I mean, as a, as a kid, I grew up, my mom and my stepdad had a body car garage, carrosserie in French. So, you know, and, and for me, salespeople or even business at the time, I had no idea. The picture I had in mind where the, the sales representative who would come to the, the, the garage, to the shop, for the company to sell their new, you know, painting products and saying, oh, you should use these sponges to, to clean the cars or, and, and for me, this, this is for me what sales was. And I was like going door to door and being the, the, the annoying part of saying, and I, I was the one who was sometimes saying, oh, my parents would tell me that just go, uh, you know, because we were living there, just tell me, what, just go in the office and say, we're not there. For, for these guys, these annoying guys. So what's the annoying, let's say, role? So it was the same thing for me. Actually, I think, but that's now a very French reference, but a full generation of people that have, at least which watch TV in French at some point, have been traumatized by Jean-Claude Convenant. He was the sales guy in a short uh, TV show that was airing in France and which was quite popular. And for the one that never saw it, it was just uh, the worst of all the categories of sales guys. And, and that was, that became so popular that I think that for many, many people, and even now today, and the show is retired for maybe a decade, when I say, uh, I say to people, you know, I'm, I'm in sales, um, the first thing they, they tell me if they know that show is, hey, come on, I know what you do. You're just cheating. You're just trying to have a sex affair with someone in the back office or, I mean, everything that could be wrong with sales. So that's a bit, you know, uh, in terms of storytelling, what we have to fight against. So if you, on top of that, in an industry which believes that we have such good product and solution that if you're selling them, it means they are not good. That's a hard combination. That's how you see sales. And that's also like, you know, what, what, that's what I've done as well at ResearchGate. Uh, you know, being cold calling, we had these trainings with the people. Or how do you pass through the gatekeepers and these tricks? And how do you... So it's true that's a part of sales. But what I realized as well with the time is marketing and marketing, there is a part of sales in marketing if you want to sell at the end. And so there are a lot of psychological trick you can use, but this is a part that I love about sales. It's actually uh, in the marketing. It's a lot about humans in general. And now it's up to you to use it in a good way, or let's say in the worst way by taking advantage of people. And I really think that sales, if you are there really now, when I have clients that always, I say, I don't try to sell. I say, I just want to try to find out if you have a problem and if I can solve it. And if I'm the right person to solve it. And if you do that with marketing, it's the same thing. Uh, if you, you find the right target audience you have and you identify correctly the problem they have and you have the right like solution for them, okay, it's sales, but it's not about trying to sell. It's about helping people in that case. 
And this is how I see sales. And, you know, you ask me, you were talking about R&D and music. It's the same thing on marketing has a very bad reputation because people think, I think for two reasons for me, or let's say three reasons I was thinking about that is first, when you are in R&D or in um, in music, it's a very technical field or challenging field. And it's something that to be good, you need to be passionate about this technology or the music field. And you have to spend a lot of hours practicing your craft or, or doing that. And because of that, you are so you want to be like seen as, as that person and not as a person who's trying to sell something. But at the end of the day, I think for R&D or for the entrepreneurs who are trying to develop their things now, especially in the very tech field, we can talk about it. But I think things are changing right now because they know, like especially the young generation, they know that exactly what we just explained right now, that they need to solve a problem for someone when they develop something. And at the end of the day, they need to be able to sell themselves because if they don't do it, another company with a similar product, which might be even worse than theirs, are going to come up. And if they have a better marketing strategy, people will hear about the others and they will consider the others and start working with the others instead of themselves. The shift you're mentioning is a very important shift. So I'm going to start with that in just a minute. But first, before, I'm going to put that here. If people like your radio voice, because uh, in preparation of that interview, I listened to a couple of your own podcasts. So um, Mission First, Entrepreneurs for Futures, which now spoils you a bit the direction in which we are going right now. And I really learned quite a lot of things. So um, we'll come back to your podcast, but I, I just wanted to put that here so that people that would stop listening after 15 minutes thinking, hey, oh God, those two have a French accent. I don't listen to that. That they, <laughs> that they know that uh, you have an excellent podcast and that I would highly recommend. I'm coming back to my idea of uh, this, this shift. And that's actually a point I was discussing with Alice Schmidt and Claudia Winkler that just uh, wrote a book, The Sustainability Puzzle. They were explaining how we are switching currently from a shareholder economy to a stakeholder economy. So in the shareholder economy, you do whatever you can to maximize your profit. In a stakeholder economy, you're trying to find a problem, exactly as, as you described just minutes ago. You, you find a problem, you solve for that problem, and then if you do that right, then profit is going to be a consequence of that. That sounded like something which really aligns with what you put on your website, that you're aiming to help the, the entrepreneurs for future. Is that the right interpretation from my end? Of the entrepreneurs for future, who they are? Yeah, and also the people that you like to help. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people I like to work with as well. Uh, I think the guests on my podcast are people that I take, that are able to inspire and to teach, or let's say not teach, but to help other entrepreneurs learn from them. And for me, the criteria is always that they care about the mission first. This is why I called it mission first. And it doesn't matter. They can be profit or non-profit organization. The criteria that I have is usually that they, they have more than three years with their companies and more than 15 employees so that they are already in this, you know, they found product market fit and they're already scaling up. So they have a lot of things to share about this product development part and, uh, you know, team management, culture, organization. And then usually sometimes when they are like uh, far enough talking already about growth and scaling up. This is how, how I see it. And this is how I like the podcast. I like it's long interviews. Somebody described it, actually, one of the listeners as a, as a masterclass in entertainment. We talk about the stories of the founders, but usually we have a clear topic we want to talk about, for example, how to bootstrap your company. And then they come up with do's and don'ts every time to basically have a, a thread 
and they start by answering directly uh, like hands-on advices. And these are people that usually are really committed to the mission. And of course, uh, what I realize is that, okay, nonprofit's a different story, but when you start a for-profit organization, lots of them want to have an impact. A lot of them care about the impact first. But what I learned from all of them is that you cannot have an impact if you don't make a lot of profit. And this is a part about to be successful in terms of impact, you need to be able to build something economically viable. So you need to be able to make profit. You need to find out the right product in order to make a lot of money. And at the end of the day, the difference is compared to, let's say, traditional you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who want to you know, become rich. They don't want to become rich. They, they, they might probably, they will probably, but the goal for them is not a quick exit. They might have an exit, but if they have an exit, it's to be able to work on their next project. And it's also to be able to sell that company to the right you know, company will take care with the same values of them. I can name, for example, Ernesto Garnier, I think one of the episodes, the founder of Heinundert here in Germany, uh, like a, a solar company. You know, he was actually saying he doesn't want to sell his company. What he would like to do is like arrive to the point where they can, you know, go like do an IPO. And he says in the green tech fields, especially in Germany, he, he was saying that lots of companies should be aiming more at like, you know, going through IPOs and then keeping the control of their company uh, instead of trying to exiting it too quickly. And so these are the people that I try to interview is people like that who really want to have an impact and develop a company that is sustainable on the long term. Is it that they are seeking an exit or that there is no other choice? Because that's one of the things which I haven't solved yet by discussing with many people. Uh, I don't know for the full green tech sector, but I can tell you in the water sector is that there's a high investment part and that there's a high you know access to market and time to market we had that deep dive with uh, with Paul O'Callaghan where he was showing that a successful technology coming to the market so I'm saying a successful so it's already with a survivor bias built in takes about 30 to 40 years to reach mass market so if you're a startup and you're bootstrapped you have to be very 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 sure about what you're doing because that means you're going to spend your full life professional life developing something and maybe the second or third generation your children or the, the people that take the, the company after you retire will experience mass market so it's not like building skype that element is very potent in the green tech do you think that that has an influence on on the path we see and the reason that there's still this this element that at some point you need whether to have an exit or to have a big company taking you on board or this kind of M&A moves? It's a hard question. I think that, like I cannot answer it because I'm not in, in the field first uh, as an entrepreneur myself developing this kind of technology. What I can say is I think the generations have changed as well. Like we, we are more impatient than before and it's hard for us to to imagine like spending 40 years on something. Well, Lots of our companies and our parents were doing that before. Not a lot of our parents could become entrepreneur at, at, at their time. The way it is right now, it's way easier. But, you know, the company I worked for, for example, Preyon, the chemical company, it was a family-owned business. And still, like, even the owners are not still are not there anymore. It's still a very family-owned business, even though it's a corporate with, you know, 2,000-plus people. But at the time, they were... They were fine developing something that they know they will stick to the next 30, 40 years. So I think one of the reasons is it's probably harder to imagine now for someone staying in that. And also the, the corporate world is such made that 
the companies are just putting such a big amount of money in front of the founders to acquire these companies. That at some point you're like, yeah, even if it's my baby, even if I want to have an impact, if I can sell my company now after 10 years or after seven, eight years and get, let's say as a founder, you know, 15 million euro in my own pocket, will I have more impact with these 15 million euro and now being able to start five other companies or will I have more impact by keeping on developing that? I mean, I'm not in the situation, but if I would be in that situation, I would also think about it, not about the, the money, about, yeah, of course, if you have 15 million euro, for sure you can buy a nice house that you wanted to have with enough space to raise your children here, even here in Berlin, where the market is completely crazy. So it's attractive, but I think even in the long term, you can have a bigger impact by selling your company. But I think it's, it's, it's really hard to, to answer that question. Something I want to add on that is I still think that this is changing. I still think that the, the young generation is going to come up. They will be part, you see it with like Elon Musk, and they're going to be, they're going to have other Teslas in the water industry and in different things as well. I think you're going to have some people who are going to, you know, Elon Musk is still having, is still on SpaceX and is still on uh, Tesla and is still on other companies. And you're going to have some founders at some point who have, the young generation will say, fuck you to the, the, the big corporates. I don't want to sell it. Maybe I'll sell it to a smaller one and I'll stay on the board and I will have the main, still the main, let's say, decision-making power on that company so that it stays on track. And I really think that this is going to change and we will have surprises in the next years. Actually, if there's one thing that usually big corporates bring to, to these founders for the best or the worst is that at least in the water fields, usually the one creating a startup come from a university or from a very, very, very technical background. And not all of them have the brain flexibility that you, you had to switch from hardcore academia to the world of business. And you can have a really, really cool product. And still, if you don't know for whom it is, so if you're really lacking this marketing element, chances are that you're going to fail and that that is kind of a lose-lose if you think that your product may have solved some major issues. So I was seeing that as a potential uh, reason why you were wrong and as a potential reason why you, you bring value in that sector, but that might be wrong. So what are these entrepreneurs that, that you help in terms of marketing with your company? At which stage are they on their path to a unicorn or IPO or simply of having an impact? For me, the stage where they are doesn't really matter. I work with some companies who are a bit more advanced. I don't work with, with corporates yet, but I'd be also happy to work with corporates as soon as it's the right mission and the right project. It can be at the very early stage where they need, you know, the, basically the problem I'm solving with the companies I'm working with is they are usually in the green tech sector because in the green tech sector, uh, or let's say a very technological product because in that case, usually the owners are usually very technical and they don't have the, the marketing like senses and affinities and skills. And this is a part where uh, with my PhD, I, because I love to dig into you know complex things and to try to extract from that complex product and from that complex solution, try to think about the, put myself in the shoes of the audience and then be able to transform or to convey a message coming from this complex product into a story that we can share to the audience and knowing exactly to identify what is the problem you're solving, how should you talk to them? And in that case, 
I think my 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 PhD, the fact that the, these founders are very technical, they like the fact that I can relate to them very easily, and that I can relate to their audience. So I'm 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 in the middle for them, and the way I do that regarding the stage, I'm solving two problems for them. Usually, either they don't have the right experience in digital marketing, and in that case, what I do, you know, for example, either they don't know anything. Or they are doing things, but they cannot build something reproducible. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And usually they don't have the time to learn everything, even though they, they might have some marketers inside that are really good at, you know, as Facebook advertising. Or they cannot hire a senior marketing expert from scratch and build a, a whole marketing team when you're still building your product. And so in that case, I joined them either as a consultant, what I call interim CMO, or I offer them workshops uh, where I use collective intelligence. I think, you know, we're familiar with design thinking as well, design thinking methods, where uh, we do these, these brainstorming workshops, where at the end of the day, whatever I'm a consultant or I use the workshops, I help them find the most efficient growth strategy using content, valuable content marketing for their audience and to disseminate it, promote it on multiple channels. And that includes doing the strategy, doing the budgeting, defining which resources they need in terms of like in-house or recruiting freelancers. So that's one of the things I do for them. And then the second thing I say, we can talk about it later, but uh, I, I focus on the operational level. I'm very much into LinkedIn since a, a year and a half now. So with them, I help them to grow their business, both in B2B and B2C by using like personal branding. And so I, I help them to tell their story and to grow their audiences and uh, like basically, you know, find more investors, find more clients by using LinkedIn efficiently. And I do that either with advertising or personal branding workshops and growth automation, because we, you might talk about it, but you can save a lot of time by uh, using growth automation without being spammy. Don't spoil that part. We will come back to that. <laughs> Just before you mentioned design thinking, Design thinking, to my understanding, comes or shall come before you have a product because it's actually your customer telling you the problems they have so that you can come with the, the suited solution. But he also said that sometimes people contact you when they have a product and they start thinking of how to push it to the market. If you had the chance to have like the, the perfect setup and if you, had, you were to give an advice to all those founders out there of green tech companies, when is the right point in time where they shall start thinking about marketing? From the very beginning, I say. And you have founders who get that from the very beginning and they grow way more quicker than the others. So, you know, they are building uh, at the Founder Institute, they are coming up with an idea. They don't even have the, sometimes the right founding team, but some of them already start to tell their story on LinkedIn, tell their story on social media and they grow with that. And you can say, for example, an, a super other example I had recently in my podcast, Kathy Ernst, the co-founder of Ouya, a, a brand of uh, underwear for women like who have their periods, a super interesting CEO, inspiring CEO. But she also did the same thing. You know, when people told you, you need to raise funding, and she had a funny story, not a funny story, but actually like a, a weird story and, and, and a sad story. The, the fact that like, you know, uh, as a female founder and developing female products, she couldn't find investment at the beginning. She couldn't find investors. When I listened to that episode, which is, by the way, you're absolutely right, a fantastic episode. It reminded me of something one of my guests, Oriana Brechka, on that microphone once gave me that statistic that in the venture capital world, 
1% of venture capital goes to female founded businesses. And to my knowledge, it's like 50-50 between women and men in the founder's world. So that means if you're a female, it's not even a wall, it's a mountain that you have to climb. So so yeah, sorry, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, but just to say that that was the first thing that crossed my mind when I listened to your your interview. Yeah, yeah, and it's very unfair. And I mean, I'm not the right person to talk about too, because I'm not uh, a woman here. So uh, I let that to talk about it, but it's really unfair. And that's, that's very sad. But the fact is, so what she did the way she grew the company with her co-founder, they started it. And what they started to do is during two or three months, they went to all kinds of fairs to talk about the product when they didn't have it yet, talking about the idea of what they want to do. And every time they were doing that, they were also doing everything in parallel to Instagram. So as soon as they started to talk about this experience to people, to gather ideas, to gather feedback, I think they were doing like live on Instagram every day, sometimes for a few minutes, sometimes for longer, every day during three, four months. And like that, they grew an audience of a couple of thousands of people before they actually started a crowdfunding campaign after three or four months. That crowdfunding campaign went through the roof. They had 15,000 euro in the, in, the, in the first days. And uh, so they, they achieved the objective very well. From that on, they went to look for investors that didn't believe in the products. And then from there on, they say, okay, fuck it, we'll bootstrap it. And she explained that very well in the podcast, how she bootstrapped it. And now she has a community of 70,000 people on Instagram just because she tells her story as a founder from the very beginning. So I think marketing-wise, it's in your own interest as a founder to start doing it from the very beginning. You don't have to go in all directions. That's for sure. Like she chose to go only on Instagram. She's not on LinkedIn. That's a choice. And this is something when I'm happy to help and to give feedback and, and to or to accompany some entrepreneurs. But I think you should consider it from the beginning. But even there, if I was to be the devil's advocate and to go even further in your direction that marketing shall come first, I don't know if you read the book, The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. He's basically explaining that if you come and say, hey, I have this ID and you, you tell that your mom, it's embedded in her. She has to tell you it's a, it's a wonderful ID, even if it's not. So what he's saying is that you should always look for the problems and never, 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 even in the in these early phases, start talking about your solution. But that's counterintuitive. You, you start just walking around and asking people for their problems. Is that idealistic and not possible in the real world? Or would you even advise to go to that level of, of perfection in terms of, of the order of things? I'll give you an example. I had on that microphone a fantastic guy called uh, Srinath Bolizetti that was in season one. He had a product which I do believe brings so much in terms of added value. And he was struggling because he developed that product for four years and he didn't find a market for that because he's the pure technical guy. And all of a sudden he has to find a market for his technology. And I was just wondering, could he had just walked around and asked people, is arsenic a problem? Because his solution was just solving the arsenic problem in water. And if he had started walking around, he would have found what is the, the market sector who has the most potent problem with arsenic. Whereas now he just has this, this quite of vague intuition that in all the possible verticals, there is, to a certain extent, an arsenic problem. But to whom is it the most problematic? Who are the people who are really dying to have a solution. And I said that as, a, as an expression, but actually people are really dying of the problem of arsenic when it's in their drinking water. So I'm wondering if 
you can advise to such a guy who's a, a researcher, the most advanced technician there is on earth in that very specific section to say, hey, hold on, put all your research on ice and go out six months and discuss with your market. I really believe that you should discuss with your market and you should discuss with a potential audience from the very, very beginning. I mean, I think there are two different things here. There is a part about marketing that we say, you know, promoting what you're doing. And in that case, I, I can understand that some people don't have either the skills or the will or the time at the beginning to, to do it. And so you don't have to do what Katia has done and go on Instagram from the very beginning and tell your story and explain your problem life. Is that not what you want to do? But talking to your potential audience, you have to do it from the very beginning. Otherwise, you're going to like waste a huge amount of time. Not everything can be done in terms of design sprints. Are you, I guess you're familiar with design sprints, with the methods where you can actually, the ideas, you can test any ideas within five days with your audience. And I think with some of the more technological like problem, it, it's way easier to do with the software, of course, when it's more technological, it's different. But uh, Epishine, one of, of the guests of my podcast, which is also one of my clients now, explained it very well. You have to find the right business case. They're developing, you know, they can print solar cells. So they use these organic solar cells that they can like uh, print on and, and have very thin layer and use these layers. And they could have used for a lot of different business cases and even though they have the product still being developed and optimized in the lab, because they developed it during several years in the lab in Sweden, uh, Matthias Josefsson, the founder, went everywhere to talk to the different businesses to see where is the biggest approach, where is the most interesting market and business case for us? Is it in electronics for consumer electronics? Is it, uh, uh, is it for sensors? And so you have to do that from the very beginning. And when you talk to these corporates or uh, other companies or clients, if it's B2C, you have to figure out where is the best case. You know, Matthias, for example, he has a, so a very, like, he has a vision to become the next Tesla, like to, to have an, a high impact as Tesla will have with his, uh, with his solar cells, because they can, with the revolutionary production process, they can produce like millions and millions of, uh, of cells very easily. So it has a, a huge potential impact, but he, he says, you know, we have to see first, find the most valuable business case, basically in this case, so instead of MVP, it's the most valuable business case before to be able to nail that one. And then you can, you can go to, to bigger, like other verticals. The reason why I'm insisting so much on that, on that stage of marketing is that spontaneously when you, you talk to, to muggles, I'm still a muggle, I'm reading books because I, I, I love the field, but I'm not a marketing expert like you are. And when you speak with, with marketing muggles and you tell them, hey, I'm working in marketing, what they see is brochures, PowerPoints, maybe trade shows. And that full element, which comes in, in the early stages of a company life, of a product life, which is finding the right market, which is somehow the definition of marketing, that's always to... If I say the hidden part of the iceberg, I think it's still not describing it because the hidden part of the iceberg, you know, it exists. You don't know what it is, but you know, it exists. And that's really the part many people ignore. Is it really me from my muggle point of view, or do you really still meet people for whom marketing is these brochures and PowerPoints? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still, I think it's a common thing and theme you see, especially in the B2B world and especially in the corporate world. So, you know, you have these, you know, these big companies in the corporate world who still believe that like marketing is done like 20 years ago and that that's the way to go. 
uh, and I mean, I don't, I don't blame them because you know they are probably like uh, like the the people at the top, the top level managers are probably fifty five plus, and at the time they were probably also very much into production or let's say technical thing and didn't care about the marketing because the B2B world was made that way in the past. Again, everything is changing. Now I see some companies, you can see like take Plan A, they are named the hottest startup in Europe right now. And it's a sustainability SaaS software as a service. They are doing fantastic job of the marketing. The founder is doing exactly what she needs to do in order to push the word about the company, also their mission and what they want the impact to be. But I think it's still... Don't get me wrong. I think that, for example, trade shows and brochures are still the way to go. But what I found stupid, and that is something we were already seeing at ResearchGate, and when we had clients who would start to work with, uh, with us at ResearchGate, we would manage to convince them because they, they were the one who was the most difficult to convince, like, you know, these old, sometimes family business, corporate business, who actually are only going to trade show, and you ask them, uh, but do you know how many leads you have from trade shows? Oh, yes, we have like, you know, we get 50 business cards. But uh, And from these business cards, how many become client? Oh, well, we don't know. And, and this is what's crazy right now. I really think, yeah, you should go to these trade shows. You should go. That's definitely a, like the way to go to get leads. But what it's usually costing you know, 5000 For bigger companies, sometimes they spend what? I don't know in your company, how much do you spend to go to a trade show when you send a team there? Like a few dozens of thousands, 50,000 euro? I would say much more. Much more. You see, like, you know, when you have, and what I find crazy is when you spend 50,000 euro to go on these trade shows and lots of people there, but you don't spend at least 5,000 euro in digital marketing in parallel. Because you go there and you d then you, you have no idea how it went. You just have to rely to the gut feeling of, you know, how much champagne you had and how much good like chats you had with other people. That's how you rely on it. And it, it's part of the business. But if you spend 5,000 euro extra in digital marketing, then with these 5,000 euro, you can raise awareness in your brand with digital campaigns. You can target people like that goes to that event before the trade show during the trade show, even in that location with Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, you can help them to know about your brand, share content they'd be interested, get their email address, then retarget them and have them to book an appointment with you. And they come super hot, like warm, it's not hot at the show to have like to be with you. And you can have your full agenda packed with pre-booked meeting from people who are already interested about your brand. And afterwards, if you have installed the tracking properly, there is a chance, or even if you do it manually with the right team and agile process within your team, you can actually measure how much you've converted to clients. Two questions here. What is the coolest activation campaign you've made around a physical event in the digital world? And second, what would be the balance you would put between your investment in one and in the other? To answer the first question, I'll be honest with you, it's something that I know only from managing events on my on my own so i have never done it with clients this is something uh, if somebody's listening to i'm happy to have my first case study with them please contact me because i know it's working i mean i know from from other marketers i've done it with i know from having like clients selling tickets for clients of events this is how it works this is how this is just easy to do and it's just about applying what we've done for other campaigns to that topic and that uh, that project let's say so it's totally possible to do it. So I've never done it really, but in, in terms of budget, it's very easy. Just take, I would say, you know, with a few thousands of euro, 
it's enough money to just raise, you know, we, it's very easy to calculate. On LinkedIn, you get people uh, in the best case scenario for, you can have people learning about your company for one to two euro. So if you if you spend, you know, let's say if you spend 50,000 euro on your booth and you spend 5,000 euro, you can calculate how many potential visits you will have on your website for that. You can calculate how many leads you will have from this. And the leads are going to be like cost you from, you know, from 20 to 50 euro, depending on the kind of product and how good you are at converting them. And so if you spend 50,000 euro in offline marketing, you should spend 10% at least in, in digital. And this is how I would spend it. And the good thing is you can measure. And when you see it's going very well, maybe you spend 20 or 30%. What you're describing here sounds like the canonic example of growth hacking or growth strategies, let's say. You mentioned growth. I'm not sure you mentioned growth hacking. So maybe it's me adding the hacking. But when I hear growth or growth hacking, by the way, both of them, growth marketing, growth strategies, growth hacking, I see, you know, Dave McClure in this uh, YouTube video just making his R sound just to, to, to introduce this framework, A-A-R-R-R. And it, it has this, you know, a bit especially when you say hacking, there's a bit this shady element. Are you hacking people's computer? Are you hacking people's minds? And the way you explain it makes a lot of sense. It's uh, instead of targeting Germany, let's target the cities because that makes more sense. Let, let's look at the, the KPIs and the ROI and let's look at the, the thing that works the best. But there's still this taint. Is it something you, you see as well? And what's your, your counter argument to this shady side of things? I mean, the shady side of thing is, I think it's it's kind of, yeah, that's uh, that's normal because you hear, I mean, that can be very shady and that you can do things that are completely legal because of, you know, this is a tech, this is a side about digital marketing, you use tech. Now, at the end of the day, <laughs> I hate to say that, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if you go put posters of your company somewhere, it's the same thing, right? You can pay a, like a shitload amount of money to go through that, or you can also go put your posters yourself on, you know, on boards, on billboards yourself and, and, and put them there. And if you want to do that, normally you have to ask permission if you can do it, put it on the board. You cannot put it up also on any poles in the street. You have to define where you have to put it. So that's also kind of shady. It's, it's about, in that case, about the brand. Do you want to do it that way or not? And in, in terms of tech, it's all about the same thing. How do you want to use the tech? Because gross marketing, gross hacking, I personally don't like gross hacking. I don't like the term gross hacking and I don't like the mindset. I mean, the let's try to define both first. Okay, like uh, gross hacking for me, the best example you can think about is the famous Airbnb hack. I was going to say that. It's usually the one that people take because, it, it, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, what they what they said is like, you know, they had no marketing budget. And they were like, how can we promote our company better? And then they thought about the referral. And growth hacking is about what is the minimum thing we can do that can have the biggest impact. And in that case, it's also a lot about thinking. You have your growth funnel. You know, that goes. You said this. Uh, so a a a triple a triple r. So awareness, acquisition, activation, revenue, retention, referral. And referral usually is something that is underestimated, but usually if you increase by 5% the referral rate, you can have an increase, it's proven you can have an increase of 95%, up to 95% of revenue. So referral is one of the first things you should work on. So how you can get the people to talk about your brand, to amplify your brand or your, your, your product. And so what Airbnb did on that time, they said, okay, 
uh, actually Craigslist in the US uh, had an integration an integration option and they after people publish on the Airbnb platform they uh, they add they say they add a, a small new window new page that says do you want to promote it on Craigslist as well you just have to click these two clicks select the, the, the location and then it's automatically on Craigslist in San Francisco with millions of views and so of course like it's really exploded the amount of views that they had and the the awareness on their brand because all of a sudden Craigslist was flooded with with Airbnb ads. So this is a hack they use. But the thing is, what I don't like about growth hacking is that people think that they will find that trick and they all try to find that trick for them. What can we do? And of course it can go shady because you can use technology to scrape, you know, email addresses automatically on LinkedIn, on Google, or on, on uh, you know, you can take any website and there are tools to do it. You can also, you know, pay someone, a, a developer who can who can do that. But now you have to be very careful, careful first of, with GDPR. Since one and a half years, I would be very, very careful. I've never liked that. My previous CEO was like, yeah, you could do that. I can I can find a, you know, an Indian developer and we can do that. And I'm always like, you know what? I'm not a big fan of that. You can always do it, but you have to be very careful. What I prefer about the gross marketing is gross marketing is for me, is taking the mindset of gross hacking try to get the best, be creative and get the best impact with the minimum effort, but with a long-term plan. And long-term plan, meaning in that case, think about your brand as well, because growth hacking don't care about your brand. They don't care about it. All they care is about growth and trying to find a way to get a lot of users. And if they piss off a lot of other people because of the way they do it, they don't care. That's why I don't like about it. So in, in terms of gross marketing, you try to do the same thing, but you think about your brand and you think about the customer service and the customer experience. And the way I like to say it, the analogy I found yesterday, thank you very much for, for making me think about that because I found the best analogy I could find is you can choose to take shortcuts. But if you try to take shortcuts all the time, there is a moment where you can get lost and you don't read, at the end you reach your destinations way after others who took the long road. And this is, you know, you probably have been there. You're like, or been with friends. We're like, yeah, let's try to to cut there. And then they try to find the shortcuts so much that at the end they arrive after you at that place. And this is why I like growth marketing. It's about choosing the longer road, but then you have a road that you know will lead you to your destination. And that longer road for me is to understand your audience, position yourself well, provide value to them with content they are interested in, get them to follow you, become a lead, you know, then nail down your USP and your conversion strategy to convert them into from followers to clients. And that's your destination. And when you know that road very well, it's actually very easy to push on the accelerator and to get very quickly to your destination. And that's what you do. Your accelerator in that case is optimizing your campaign, knowing which one works well, uh, or having always a strategy on how you put the campaigns, how you test them and how you decide which ones you should keep having an agile process in-house to create the content and to warm up your leads with, you know, automated email marketing and include the feedback from your clients, for example, and get them to refer to others. So this is the way I prefer it. It's like, take the longer road to try to understand it very well, and then you can accelerate. Now I have to be the devil's advocate again. You gave the example of Airbnb, which is B2C. The other usual example I see quite a lot is Dropbox. Dropbox was playing a lot on the referral level with you get more space if you invite your friends. And again, it's B2C. Does that translate really 
to B2B. I am fully B2B. If you're in, in the water industry, you have to be fully B2B. You're not really selling a 12 million wastewater treatment plants to an individual end user. Does this kind of strategies and approaches apply exactly the same between B2C and B2B? Do you have to adapt it or does it simply not fit? I'll ask you a question. Like, If you get a referral from Dropbox from a friend... I've been there. I've done that. I've like remember like adding lots of friends to increase my space. I didn't have money at the time to increase my my, my Dropbox space. We've all done it. I still have it on my Dropbox. I have three tera octet and two hundred mega. Just because these two hundred mega are still there, it's all the people I spammed with it at the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, I mean we've been there. We're probably the same age when we were at the university and like uh, uh, so. But you get these referrals from Dropbox. But how do you choose? your partners or your companies when you're in the B2B sector? Are you using only Google or, or are you using only like trade shows or do you rely on referrals of others? Out of habit, a lot. Trade shows, quite a lot as well. But I think you cracked it. On every tender, you have to give references. I mean, marketing at the end of the day, it's the same thing in B2C and B2B. The concepts are the same. So referrals, for example, is the same. So if you take care of your brand well, if you have a great experience with your customer, the referral will work better. This is why, I mean, it's not only about growth hacking, it's about branding, which is part of marketing as well. And to answer that, look, the three arguments that I have to convince you that like B2B should actually change and be more marketing focused is look at the brands that are doing it well in B2B. I can send you some links, you know, Adobe Marketing Cloud. I saw some, because I've gathered a lot of ads for some, like when we have to create content. But Adobe Marketing Cloud, you said cloud. It, it's a fully digital thing. Yeah, it's a fully digital one. I agree. But they have a very, very funny, like uh, advertising that when I saw it, I was like, man, this is really good. In that case, that's B2B, the part that's selling, in, in, I think, in marketing, the Adobe Marketing Cloud. But think about NGOs. I saw the really cool like uh, COVID prevention video last time. I can also send you the link, but uh, called Don't Be a COVID Idiot. But that's applied to NGOs. Again, people will say, you but NGOs, they cannot do what, you know, it's different. Okay, this one is B2C again. But think about Boston Dynamics. You don't buy Boston Dynamics robots. You know them. You probably know them. So if, if, tomorrow, if tomorrow you start a company and you need to have one of these robots helping you with something, you will think about Boston Dynamics. The, the brand at the top of your mind will come with be Boston Dynamics. And I'm sure that now there are tons of other, not tons, but probably a dozens of other companies who are developing robots. But if you are in the sector and you start tomorrow, or if you've been there, the first brand you will think about is Boston Dynamics. And then in terms of storytelling, think about Elon Musk. Like uh, nobody would think about, you know, okay, Tesla is B2C, but SpaceX was B2B, PayPal was B2B. And it doesn't have to be about storytelling and big, you know, ego maniac CEOs. You think about Help Scout. It's uh, the tool I was using for my previous company in customer support. When we had to do the benchmark, we looked at the different options and they, I found them via a blog. And they had an amazing blog with an amazing newsletter about customer support. And almost every week during like weeks, I've opened the email because every time I was learning something about psychology of customer support. And so that's B2B and that's niche, but it really worked for me because I chose their products versus others because they were educating me. And when it comes to LinkedIn, the two other arguments I have is when it comes to LinkedIn personal branding, and if you don't do it, the upcoming young competitors will do it. This is the two things I want to add is 
everybody in terms of personal branding, everybody should tell their story and build their brand. And it's not about, sometimes people think about the founder, but it's not about the founder. Think about you as an employee, as a business developer. If you build your brand using LinkedIn now, using Instagram, doesn't matter, you will find your next job more easily. You will find investors more easily if you're an entrepreneur. You will find talents or co-founders or partners more easily when you decide that you need to change or to start a new project. And the last thing was, if you don't do it, the upcoming young competitors will do it. For the corporates, that's what I want to say. You will lose market shares. It will be hard to catch up once you will see that somebody who has the same product of you and in the water industry, you've sent me some examples. I think they're doing a great job and you will have more and more of these people and young entrepreneurs will come up with products and these big companies will think they can acquire them, but this might change too. So it's better to catch up the train and to get to, to jump on the train soon enough, I think. But to a certain extent, what you just said can be very scary if you're a C-suite executive of a larger group or a B2B company, because I can here give you my, my very personal example. When I started out this, this podcast series and I started pushing some content on, on LinkedIn, the first feedback I got is, hey, you're looking for a job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and there's still that, and you just said it, for sure, I'm not going to lie here, it's going to be much easier for me to find a new job if I was to look for a new job just because I'm visible and I was building my, my, my personal brand. But that's still not the reason why I'm doing all of that. I'm doing all of that because I wanted to position the company I'm, I'm working for, which is a 216 years old company, as someone who is also playing on that field and who was not visible before. But you are meeting a field. I mean, it's hard for an employee to do its personal branding on a trade show. He's on the middle of a booth, branded with a company. He has the suit that the company decided him to wear. He has the badge that the company decided him to wear. So it can be scary to see that now they are, all those people are out there in the field and um, they can do social media on their own. They can build the brand on their own. And maybe they tell a story you don't want them to tell. So how do you prevent that? You mean from the company side? Yeah. You can't. You can't prevent them. You can't, uh, you know, of course the, you can prevent, you know, there are some secrets you cannot, you, you're not going to start to talk about, you know, the technology behind what you are, you, you've patented and you have a, a NDA that you, you sign and you, you have agreed to when you work for your company. But regarding the, the company and t talking about building your brand is something you can't prevent from the employees. Now, I never remember jokes, but I had this joke that I always remember about these CEOs who are always scary about what the employees could do and how much training they should give the employees if they leave. So it's the same thing here about personal, it's about personal branding, you know, and, and this joke I, I, rem I always remember is like, you have this CFO comes to a CEO and who tells them, oh, our employees want to have that training and it costs, you know, 10,000 euro. What should we do? If, what if we offer it to them and they leave the company? If we train them and we get them way better and they leave the company and then the CEO, in that case, a smart CEO says, yeah, but what if they stay and we don't do it? It's funny because you present that as a joke. To me, it was a quote from Steve Jobs. And I know that everything which sounds clever is usually labeled from Steve Jobs on the internet. But, <laughs> but, uh, but maybe, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, and that's the same thing here. So I think uh, like it's hard for, I mean, first of all, it's hard to do personal branding. It's true, especially for these corporates, I understand. But at the end of the day, I think your job as a company is to make sure 
you treat your employee as well as possible. You motivate them with your mission, with your the flexibility, the environment, the culture you're creating that they want to stay. You cannot prevent them from leaving. And then in the second thing you can do, this personal branding can amplify in an organic way your company for sales, for marketing. Right now, LinkedIn is booming, like since a few years already, and you don't know how long it's going to last. You know, Facebook eight years ago, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, as we say, you know, like if you listen to Gary Vee, he always says it, you know, LinkedIn is at a stage where Facebook was eight years ago. And Facebook, you know, a few years ago, even like five, six years ago, you could post something on Facebook, all your friends would see it. And then if you were an artist, you would put your music out there. Everybody would like see the post. Now it's impossible on Facebook because they rely so much on advertising. The reach is almost nada if you don't pay. LinkedIn, now we have the chance. It doesn't matter how many people are following you or your connection you have. If you post something interesting, you very often will get a reach, which is way past the amount of followers you have. I have 3,500 like followers on LinkedIn or like connections on LinkedIn. I have I post two, one to three times a week, and I have very often 30,000 plus views of people who saw my post, which is 10 times my like the amount of connections I have. So if you get a team of, you know, you have your top 10 employees who care about the mission, who, who like the company right now, and you teach them how to build their personal brand. You tell them, it's fine, build your brand. Uh, you know, it's, it's it, it, and, and building your brand in that case, it's not about talking about the company all the time. It's about talking about yourself, talking about what you're learning at the company, what your values are, how they can be aligned with the companies. And then the, the overall effect will be that people will learn about the company. And if you do that with your, with your, with your, your people now, you can have free promotion of like hundreds of thousands of people who will see your post and we will hear about your company. And this is how powerful it is right now. So I, I really think that companies should be doing it. It should be pushing the employees to do it. And and by the way, this is also why now I started to work. I wasn't doing this LinkedIn. I was doing only advertising before, but now I'm starting to, uh, I, I'm working, you know, my first workshops with, uh, with, with AP Shine, one of my clients, with actually, uh, I do workshop with all their team. It would be in August where we're basically going to have a workshop with all their team where we're going to create, like uh, we're going to give them the codes and uh, use these uh, design thinking methods to uh, get inspiration from what the others are doing. And then everybody will create their own content for the next months to share. And, and I think this is something that all companies should, should do with employees, especially when they have a mission that people care about. There's so much to unpack in what you just said. First, I can still have my devil's advocate hat on for last time and say, yeah, but now you're dependent on the platform. What if that platform disappears? I mean, you're still a musician. I've been in music myself and I can tell you how much I invested on MySpace. We had the <laughs> most beautiful MySpace ever with my band and one day MySpace closed and we were all crying. So let, let's park that. But I think it's still a risk if you put your eggs in one place. The, the, the second element is you have to know what you're doing. You get this 30,000 reach on, on LinkedIn. I can give you several examples and much more examples of people that just get family and friends. Because if you start your LinkedIn post with, hey, I have the coolest product in the world. Well, already gone. Nobody's going to be interested in, in that. You have to, to tell a story, but you also have to, to catch people where they are. And not to use all the buzzwords, but probably copywriting is something important there. So that means you have to skill up 
if you want to to play that game. It's not just like, uh, hey, I go out and I mean, Facebook ten years ago was still I put a picture of my cat and I'm gonna get some <laughs> some likes. Which brings me to to my last element I'd like to unpack in what you just said is that it sounds to me when I listen to you like content marketing is really the field where one shall invest. All your examples, the, the emails you were reading every day, which because they were full of, of gems, those companies which you got attracted to their brands because they were giving you a wealth of information. All of that goes into the direction of content marketing. So that's a three-in-one question. And I'm sorry, I put a lot into that one. First, the channels, it's something, again, you cannot control that. What you can do is to decide on which platform you, you should start now, uh, mostly, because you can start on a few at the same time. You can start by focusing on one. For example, you know, if you're in B2B, definitely you want to be on LinkedIn. If you're on B2C, you can be on LinkedIn and you can be on Instagram as well. But both of them have different pros and cons. And that's something every you have to think about your audience and think where it makes most sense and the time you want to spend. And it also depends on what you're good at. Because different media have different values on different channels. So, for example, like people, you, you should not try to do videos if you're not good in videos or if you don't feel like doing it. You're doing a podcast, you know, like you, you're really good at interviewing. So, like some people, uh, and when I see all the amount of preparation you did for the interview, like kudos, because I feel like, okay, you're really doing that very well. And I can feel you are well prepared and the questions you ask are very relevant. So, find out what is the thing you're good at. Uh, and then you can develop a podcast that you do. You can decide to do blog articles. You can do videos. Maybe you're good at designing pictures or funny pictures. Do memes. Uh, do memes about, you know, like if you are someone very funny, do memes about the values and the stuff you're screwing up or the stuff the industry is screwing up. You don't have to do what everybody's doing. You just have to do one thing that you like to do and that you're good at. And then the good thing is about if you do it on one channel, if you learn and how to nail it, you just have to learn how to nail that. And then it doesn't matter, you know, if you've done all the work on MySpace for your band, it doesn't take you a lot of, of okay, yeah, it's a lot, it's always efforts, but if you, you, you probably know how to build an audience, if you know how to do that on one uh, channel, if it takes you, let's say, a thousand hours to do it on MySpace to find out what was really the, the trigger, how you could convert your audience, how you could find new fans, the next time you will do it on the next channel, it won't be a thousand hours. It will be maybe, you know, 10 to 50 hours because you know how to do it. So you can do that on LinkedIn right now. And if you learn how to do or to tell your story or to use personal branding or to use content marketing on LinkedIn, you can do it on Instagram. You just have to adapt it. And on the next channel that will come after. And uh, so that's for the first channel. The second one, how to nail it. It's about there are, and that's what I'm working a lot right now, by analyzing others doing it, you can find very quickly what are the different things you should talk about. So for example, you know, on LinkedIn, it's very clear the four or five types of content that work very well is, for example, you create content and you offer it for free in exchange of comments and likes. It's still something that works very well. You see that on LinkedIn, uh, you create a, uh, you know, a list of I don't know uh, what could be the water partners that could be uh, that could be all the different uh, podcasts or the resources that you should all listen to uh, as a uh, people in the in the water industry. And if you exchange that, uh, you offer it to send it to the people in the in the mailbox or in the LinkedIn box by just exchanging against the content. It's something that will work. Other thing is, I need your opinion. Asking people's opinion, people love to talk. That works always very well. Here is what I'm working on and here is what I'm struggling at. Or here is what I've done 
here is what I've learned and uh, celebrating success, for example, but explain the story behind. Just let's say, yeah, we reach a thousand customers. Uh, say, oh, we reach a thousand customers. That was a long road. And I've learned that the most difficult part was this and this and that. Then that's, so basically you have a framework of different content you can create and you just have to learn that. And then you will find your favorite ones and you will test them. And so that's how you get better at it. And what me, what I do with, with the people now I work with is I can help you find inspiration and give you guidelines on how to create it. At the end of the day, you have to create it yourself. And then the last question was content marketing. Yeah, content marketing, I just I just believe that's the way to go because now everybody's offering content and everybody's offering content for free. So the ones who will be noticed more are the ones who offer the best content for free, at least to raise awareness and to show thought leadership. And then after your product will make a difference. I'll sneak a last question here because I have to be cautious with time at some point, but uh, I could just spend one more hour we, <laughs> yeah. on that topic. So I'm, I'm, I promise you, I stick to, to that last one. You mentioned email marketing. And to me, that is, if you, if you make a Venn diagram between common strategies in the 21st century and marketing strategies as we used to do, the only intersection is probably email marketing. So that's probably the, the point where those two words may be eager to meet. And that's also a point when once you, you, you own your email list, you own it. If the company disappears, you don't care. I mean, if LinkedIn dies tomorrow, you still have the mails. Is email marketing still as hot as it sounds or is it a field that you would really put at, at the very last? No, no, that's, I think that's, a, that's the most important one. You said it and I forgot to say it regarding the channels. At the end of the day, you should try getting followers is one good thing, but you should all try to get to build your email list as a company or as a you know, personal brand or something. And so whatever you do, uh, even if it's not you know, a company as such, but your, your, your small little projects on the side, you should try to get people's email because then it doesn't, you own it. So I really think that now SEO, it's not something I'm, 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 I'm specialized on, but I think if I build a company right now, the two things you should focus on is SEO. And for SEO, you need content, of course, content marketing again, but SEO is critical and has the best ROI on the long term, even sort of effort at the beginning. So SEO and email marketing is still very hot because it's like referral, right? When you reach that point with a client, upselling, uh, nurturing the clients you have is the best thing you can do. So email marketing and having a and having a smart email marketing strategy. So, you know, knowing now, for example, not only doing email and emailing the tens of thousands of people you have on the email list, but using the smart email marketing tools where you can manage to know, for example, you know your podcast. If I sign up tomorrow, I have to do that on my podcast. I don't have the time. I would love to. It will come at some point. But your podcast, the way you can do smart email marketing is, you know, you send an email as soon as I've signed up from a specific page from your podcast, you can send me an email with saying, hey, these are three different episodes from really three different topics. And here are a small description of the topics. I hope it can help you have a last like, listen. And then if I click on a specific topic, then I'm tagged automatically liking that topic. And then the next time an episode, when you, when you publish an episode about that topic, you can send me an email about that one. Maybe a personalized uh, like a message saying, hey, I know you received the emails about the other podcast episodes, but this one is a specific one about that. So th this is what I mean about email marketing. And, and now it's, you know, in, in companies when they actually hire 
the first thing I would hire in a company, but not the, maybe not the first thing, but I think the key persons you need in a company is an SEO manager and an email marketing manager who knows about these all like these lifecycle emails and email marketing automation when you can actually uh, set up a whole marketing automation so that people receive emails that they only care about. So you're saying that marketing should come first, as you said before, but even if it comes first inside that field, there are subcategories which come even first, and that's SEO and email. That's what I would do in-house, yes, definitely. I mean, for me, uh, like I think you can outsource advertising. You can outsource digital advertising, Facebook advertising, LinkedIn advertising, even kind of like a, you know creatives. Uh, but I think uh, SEO, you should have, and content, you should have someone in-house who knows your business very well. And if not the same person, you should have a person who can take care of email marketing as well. Okay, at that stage, uh, as I said, I have to be cautious every time. So I'll park it here for the deep dive. I would have so much more. I mean, addressing hypergrowth, addressing, because we talked about a lot about inbound marketing, but I think outbound is probably not dead. And I took a mental note that, after listening to that podcast, many people are going to reach out to you and try to see how they can bridge this digital and um, and trade show approach. And to be honest, today you have a case study on that. I'd be incredibly happy to have you back on that microphone because I think that's really one of these, these blind spots, at least of the water industry, but of many industries that, that still heavily rely on, on, on trade show. It's uh, exactly as, as, you, as you described. I mean, you, you nailed it. You have this 1,000 leads, out of which 900 are people you already know, 50 are students, and the other 50 are just uh, walking around and are so cold, and you're, it must be a miracle if you convince them to get a link with your company. But let's use that as a teaser for a future discussion. And uh, if it's fine with you, I propose you to switch to uh, the rapid-fire questions. Yes. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I try to keep the question short. If you can keep the answer short, that's cool as well. But you're going to see that I'm the one side tracking. So no worries. First question, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? It's not related to what I'm doing now. I would say this thing that was the most exciting and uh, that I had the most fun with was as uh, during my PhD, I was a, uh, an assistant, a, a professor assistant. So you have to do some uh, tasks for the university, uh, teach. And I was also in charge of uh, like uh, participating to the Science Expo exhibition. So we would like uh, have a theater and every time we would have people from the last year and the high school coming to the university and we were presenting that the first year we did it, you know, doing it the, the normal way, the traditional way where, hey, this is two chemicals. We mix them together. This is what happens. This is the theory behind it. And we found that very boring with the team of the, all the like, uh, assistants who were there. So one time we had a beer and an evening, and then we thought about how we could reorganize that. And we actually turned that, we revamped the whole exhibition, taking into a account making like it the first year like csi the, you know the, the the experts is like a tv show that it was really like trending at the time and so we make it about how can we like let's make a scenario there is a murder at the university and then we just think about all the different experiments we could show related to the experts that is a csi show and then we really had a build up a scenario and we were coming and we had like a real like jacket from the like this fbi jacket uh, in Kevlar, and we, we had a real 
scenario that we built. And uh, so we were acting as well as explaining. And so this was uh, super, super exciting. And the impact it has on students was huge. Like the students were like, uh, you know, the old conservative ones when Charles the Expo was like, exhibition were like, yeah, we can't do that. You know, it's more like acting and it's not really science. But then the, uh, like the success was really huge. We had people from like uh, kids who told about it to their parents who were journalists at the you know national television and they came and then it stayed. So every year we had a different, we had theme about, you know, Harry Potter and the magic behind it. So, uh, and I think that's the way to go. It's the same thing. Basically it's content marketing for science. You make it attractive for students. And then like people, like instead of having students half sleeping, we had every time a mixture of like 10 minutes acting, playing, and then 20, like 15 minutes, 20 minutes explaining. And they were really hooked. I was going to say exactly that. You said it's, it's a non-related field, but it's edutainment. And that is the root of, of marketing. It's how to take people where they are and to start by attracting and catching their attention and then do something about it. So to me, it's exactly the same field. Yes. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's good. It yeah, there's a pattern in, in what you're doing. <laughs> What's your favorite part of your current job? Uh, I'm free to do what I want. <laughs> so this was the best decision to, to leave my, my, my employee job one more time. Tough decision, but I don't regret it at all because I'm free to organize my time as I want to take the decision I want. And then regarding the job itself, I'm, I'm really excited to work with, like I said, like, quoting like Epishine as a client now, having these super inspiring teams who are uh, having an impactful technology and uh working with cross-functional team to, to work on the marketing, uh, thinking about the bringing everyone together and realizing that you actually get way more out of it than having just you know a discussion or brainstorming with the marketing people there is what I really love. So if I was to use your terminology in your own podcast, uh, that would be a do and the do would be dare to take your freedom. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, yeah. See how I sneaked again, how cool your podcast is. So, <laughs> <laughs> what is the trend to watch out for in digital marketing? I hate trends, uh, but I would say it's, it's getting there. You can't avoid it. It's basically automation combined with personalization. So with all these, like uh, the rise of, you know, AI and all these tools, marketers, it will be all about being able to create great content, but at the same time, being able to, understand what you can do to personalize experiences with the, the tools you have and automate that while keeping it as human and relatable as possible. I'm going to make a very boomer remark here, like really boomer. What in this world will remain human? Because, you know, usually, I mean, I, I slightly adapted the question, usually I ask the trend in the water industry and the answer is always digital, AI, machine learning, not always, but, but quite, quite often. And, and I do get it. And honestly, I'm the first one riding that trend and, and loving that wave. But I guess someone must set a limit somewhere. I mean, it's scary. At the same time, as much as I love technology, I really, I'm really scared of being, you know, what this movie, a Ready Player One, uh, where they live, you know, in a, in a, in a distant world where they, they just wake up and then just go in the virtual world the whole day. And I'm, I'm really afraid of that because that's a direction where I can see coming with virtual reality and then people, especially that the fact that people have boring life and the economy as doesn't have like lever, like ex the species are going extinct. So the possibilities to go in the natural world seems to be 
uh, disappearing and, and, and it's very scary. So I, I don't know what will stay as, as human, as a human side. I just say that like, you can't avoid it, uh, right now. And I think, I hope that humans going to the wall at some point will, uh, react to avoid being actually, uh, too much, you know, robotic. And, uh, that's all I hope. And I just uh, hope as a, as a, as a marketer, just be aware of these techniques, be aware of these methods. Try to jump on them, but try to master them in a way that stays as human as possible. Uh, and and this is it's like the growth automation on LinkedIn. You know, you all receive. I'm sure you receive a thousand of message from companies, from people who can build the, your website on LinkedIn, and these are all automated. The same bullshit message to everyone. And and, and you know, growth automation right now. When I, I, I at the same time, when you combine it with content, and you make it content related, then uh, me, what I do. If someone I really is my podcast, I have 90 likes or comments on my post. I used to just click on the people who like the post and then send them a personal message saying, Hey, I saw you like my post. I'd be happy to connect. Uh, and then uh, like basically they will see my LinkedIn feed after, but it would take me hours. Now I use automation tool uh, where I do that. And actually you combine it with content marketing. So I, I don't spam people. I have like basically 80% of the people I send requests to, are accepting it, but now I do make I do, I do my content and I, I, I share content for a month. Then I take all the different posts I have, put them there. Then people receive an automatic personalized stuff. Okay, it's I'm not really talking. It's true. I'm saying it's not me who wrote the personal message, and I'm saying hi, Antoine. And it's linked to like this tool takes your first name, so I don't put it. But actually, it's still a personal message for me saying hey, Antoine. So you you like that post about that? I'd love to connect. And I stop there. I don't send a message after, hey, check my podcast. No, they will see it on my LinkedIn feed and with the content that I create. And for me, that's a way of saving tons of hours uh, as a marketer or as a salesperson, automating that and still keeping it personal. I think it's an interesting tip also because um, I, I can give you the, the example. You, you were mentioning one of the, this LinkedIn type of post where there's the like and, and the comment. And I did that for the book of the season two which was taking all the all my guests from from season two, but the point where I'm stupid is that I didn't use any tool. So basically, people would comment, and I would try to put all the time a different comment in answer to them to say, "Hey, thanks a lot for reaching out. I'm glad," and and to find a joke on each of them to say, "Hey." So it was a fun thing for me because it had a lot of success. But on the other hand, I think I did only that for a full weekend. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, when you automate, there are some fun parts and not some fun parts appearing. I mean, I, by using these tools, I made mistakes too, and I had people saying me, "Hey, I'm not blah blah blah," or uh, uh, with people I knew or uh, would get the the wrong message. So you learn from these things, but uh, at the end of the day, you like by by learning, you can do it properly. And there's also something interesting you said at the very beginning, which is that you don't like trends, and uh, and that is also something. But again, if I sidetrack you here, then we are back to one hour because. If there's one thing, you know, people say, hey, no, that has changed, that has changed. And we're still humans and we didn't change that much within five years, 10 years. We, we, we change on the time scale of centuries, of millennia. So probably if you have, if, you're, if you step aside from the tactics and you, you go to uh, thinking long, you'll see patterns which don't change that much. So, so I, I share you, your opinion on trends, but I said, I don't sidetrack you here. Let me move on. <laughs> what is the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project? And what is the one you care the least about? 
I don't know if it's caring, but I say liking, maybe uh, starting. I love starting uh, projects usually. Uh, this is my personality. Uh, you probably see it from my background and my, my experience, but I love the challenge, the compl- understanding the challenge, complexity, finding solutions, You know, understanding, getting to know the people I work with. That's what I prefer. And the thing I, li- I like the least is finishing. <laughs> Going, you know, I, I've done a PhD, so I know how to go to the details and I can do it. But uh, it takes a way more effort for me uh, than, than starting a project. How do you keep track of the market pulse, the trends? Where, what are the sources? Where do you go? Reading a lot. Uh, like, I, mean, I mean, especially following a lot of people uh, on LinkedIn. For me, it's uh, if you just take the time to follow the people who are interesting, this is for me like a natural thing. So I, I just, on, on LinkedIn, I follow people who are in, in the marketing side that I really like, and then they share content and uh, like regularly, and then I use Notion, uh, I use Notion and Asana to uh, to gather all the content together and to like categorize it. Sometimes for listening, I really like you mentioned it already. Every, everyone hates marketers from from Louis Grenier. I think it's a fantastic podcast. So that's that's mainly it. So when you say reading, it's it's reading content, blog posts, uh, and, and and posts on, on social media. Do you also read books? Books, yes, I read a lot of like I read a lot of books so like marketing or not related to marketing. One of the last most important books that I, that changed my 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 view is called Humankind, and uh, it's a fantastic book that shows actually that I've always been very pessimistic about I'm a, like I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist pessimist uh, thing that like uh, I see the positive side of things, but I'm always thinking that we're going in the wrong direction for a lot of things. And uh, and this book actually showed you that everything you think about uh, the bad part of human of humankind has actually been shown that way because of our like uh, what journalists have sh- chosen and what history have chosen to focus on. And if you take the Mill experiment, for example, the Milgram uh, experiment about you know people like doing torturing people for for that, the guys with a lot of resources and with a lot uh, shows up that. Actually, there were lots of things that they didn't talk about in this experiment, and he does that for that. A lot of different parts of the human history, there are examples of positive attitudes and people helping each other, and there are lots of examples of, for example, self-organized structures now, which are very trendy, like uh, which I really believe it's it's, it's coming up. So uh, this book is really good. I just Human googled mind. it. It's by Rutger Bregman. I'm going to put the link in the in the comments. I didn't know the the, the book, but um... Very impressive, especially like it's very inspiring, but it, you can see the guy has a very like a, resources are behind it. It's, a, a, it's not like someone who just extrapolate based on one or two facts. Last question. Do you have someone to recommend to come to that very microphone? Yeah, I mean, like the thing is like, as I said, I'm not into the water industry, so it's hard for me to find someone. I mean, the two things I can think of Two persons that I've interviewed that would be probably very good to talk about water in general, even if it's not water management. The one is uh, like Captain Watson from Sea Shepherd, obviously. And uh, the second one is Pierre-Yves Paslier from Notpla. Well, thanks a lot for those two suggestions. Um, if people want to follow up with you, aside from your uh, Mission First podcast, where shall we redirect them? I would guess LinkedIn, but you tell me. Yes, I mean, yeah. First thing, uh, first thing, LinkedIn. Probably my name, no, Gilles Toussaint. But lots of people cannot write it, so I guess you will have some links in the on the page. 
Uh, otherwise, more easily is my, my website, uh, gtimpact.com. So gtimpact.com. And uh, yeah, and there you can, if you contact me via the form there, you will have my email or you also have the link to LinkedIn there and to my podcast, Mission First, directly on, on that page. Gilles, it's been a pleasure to cover all these topics with you. Um, I'm really sorry that uh, we took much longer than expected, but uh, I think you had so much value to share that it was worth to, to dig in it. And as I mentioned, there's still a ton of things that um, we could add to, to that episode. So if there's any point in time in the future where we can make a sequel to that one, the mic is open whenever you want. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.